We may know Him truly, but we don't know Him exhaustively. There's so much more to know about Him, and we're going to spend eternity learning those things. And the fact that we don't know all those things, or the fact that not everything can be known about Him is actually an an advantage in battle. Any type of competition, we know that if if you're not fully known, that you have this, uh, well, you you can exercise authority over, you you have that advantage because not everybody knows everything about you and they, they can't anticipate Right, the things that you do. And so we know that because we don't know everything about the Lord Jesus, that you know, no one at all can exercise authority over Him because there are things that only He knows about Himself. John says that He comes in a robe dipped in blood. Of course, Christ comes as one who conquered and is reigning because of His work for us on the cross, His victory through the cross at Calvary. And then John calls Him the Word of God, the same name that He used in His gospel. Jesus is the one who was in the beginning with God and who was in fact God. He was the one who, through whom all things have been created. He was the one who brought God out into the open. Some say they were angels. I believe that they're believers and martyrs and, and those who have died since throughout the book, they're described as those who have been dressed in white. He says he's got a sword coming from his mouth, which is the reference to the Word of God, and and it will penetrate, it's going to cut, it will divide, it will be the absolute standard by which everyone is judged on that day when he returns. John says he will rule with an iron rod. It's a reference to Psalm 2, which is a common reference and theme throughout the book of Revelation. He's also going to execute God's judgment as a wine press, presses grapes. And finally, the the name that is on his robe and the name that is on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But as we're going to see in our passage tonight, well, the passage tonight paints a vastly different picture of this king. Though he's going to come on a white horse eventually, on this particular day that we're looking at, he, he came on a donkey. And he didn't have armies following him, but he had Galileans, many of whom were weak and needy and considered outcasts. And he didn't come to execute judgment on this day. He came to enter the city in which he himself would be executed, taking on the judgment that you and I deserve. And I want us to to notice four things about him tonight from our passage. I want us to notice his passion and his plan. I want to notice his parade and his praise. His passion and plan, His parade, and His praise. The outline is in its normal place in the bulletin. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, by Your Spirit, would You grant power to the preaching of Your Word. 
Grant all of us the spiritual eyes and ears we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His gospel. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and then refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. As always, I'm unfit for this task to which you've called me, and so I pray for for you to bestow grace upon me to fill me with your Spirit that I might do something good for you and for your church tonight. And it's for the sake of Christ and His church I pray these things. Amen. Well, now we're going to jump to Luke 19. I want you to look at verse 28. Luke says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As I've mentioned several times over these last uh, couple of months, actually, Jesus has been very purposeful in his movement toward and his uh, his movement toward Jerusalem and his communicating to the disciples that they're on their way to Jerusalem and they're on their way to Jerusalem for a specific purpose. Right? There, there is he he has um, he has a desire that's that he has within him because there's been something set before him. He has a desire to fulfill the will of his Father. He has a desire to do what the Father has called him to do that's going to take place in this city. And so this is really a new stage. This is, this is a turning point in our study of this gospel. And even though he was willing along the way, it's, it's taken us a while to get here, but even though he was a will, willing along the way to join the agendas of others that he met along the way, he was not willing for those agendas to impede his own agenda. Right? He... he He was not persuaded in any way to exchange that which was good and commendable for something that would be great. So he had a resolute purpose. He was unyielding. He was unwavering. He was unbendable. He must go to Jerusalem. We've heard that several times. He must go. He must go to suffer. He must go to die. He must go to be buried. He must go to rise again from the dead. It was the Father's will. It was the purpose and mission of Jesus. It was, in fact, His passion. And you and I, we need to admit, I think, as His disciples, particularly today, that we don't completely understand that passion. We don't understand that kind of resoluteness. We don't understand fully that determination that He possessed. And we don't understand that determination for many, many reasons, but there are three in particular, I think, that come to the forefront. First, you and I, we're inundated with choices every day, right? Choice after choice in every situation. Very little of what we face in the day-to-day has only one option. And even in those areas where there may be only one choice or one option, we have the tendency to rationalize and justify uh, any alternative that we might come up with, even if those alternatives aren't logical. Secondly, William Law once said that we always choose according to the greatest inclination at the time. So what's the problem with that is that our inclinations change moment by moment. They change with our emotions. They change uh, with our circumstances. And they change due to our flesh. And finally, we live in a culture where passion and commitment 
and resoluteness and resolve are all considered negative attributes. They're looked down upon. Anyone that has that kind of resoluteness and determination is considered rigid and intolerant and inflexible. And rather than please God, we, we cave and we desire to please men and we become fickle and weak and we lack commitment. So when the going gets tough, we have a tendency to get going. But Jesus, Jesus is altogether different. Jesus set His face toward Jerusalem. And he would not be deterred. And he was passionate about that goal. And that resolute one calls us to be resolute in our following of him. The unyielding one calls us to be unyielding in our devotion to him. The unwavering one calls us to be unwavering in our affection for him. And the determined one calls us to be determined in our obedience to Him. And fortunately for you and me, when we waver, when we're not resolute, when we're not determined, we can rest in the one who was. He Himself did not lack resoluteness. He remained focused and He did what the Father sent Him to do. And He went to the cross to die for you and me. And that same passion that he had going to the cross is the same passion that he continues to work in us by his Spirit. The work that he's done, he will complete. He will not leave anything undone. Which leads us to the second point. Why did he have the passion that he had? Well, the answer is because he was carrying out a particular plan. Look at verse 29. When when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and And they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. The plan was in place. Apparently, every detail was set. There wasn't going to be an element of surprise anywhere along the way. The fact that he had been talking about it for such a long time was one clue. He had repeated himself and the story didn't change. He reiterated again and again, he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise again. A sure sure sign that things had already been set in motion. And the next clue was that the donkey was where he said it would be. They didn't have to go looking for it. And it was just just as, and another point that we know that this has been said is because it was in fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 9, verse 9. It was in, in fulfillment of the prophet who said, Rejoice greatly, O da- daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And then when we really start to do some investigation, and you may have heard me say this before, but the timetable that John lays out as we move into the passion is rather remarkable and a sign that these things are, are predetermined. He says that six days prior to Passover, Jesus visits Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that would have been, that would have been on a Sunday. So when John says in verse 12 of chapter 12 of his gospel that the next day he triumphantly entered Jerusalem, and he would have been entering on a Monday. Well, Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 to 6 tell us that the lamb of the Passover that was to be, uh, was to be taken into the family on the 10th of Nisan, and it was to remain in the home until the 14th day of Nisan in which it would be killed. And interestingly enough, on, uh, in AD 30, which is the year most commonly believed to be the year that Christ died, the 10th of Nisan was on a Monday. And of course, that means that the day Christ was crucified would have been on the 14th of the day uh, of Nisan, which means that Jerusalem welcomed the Lamb and crucified the Lamb as they had always done, but not in the way that they thought. The predetermined plan of God. Add to that the fact that men were used as a part of the plan. Again, we see what God had been doing or was doing. Jesus could have called the donkey to himself. He could have whistled. He could have, with a thought, brought it to him. But instead, snapped a finger. But instead, he used men. In His sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, and in Christ's obedience, He summons two disciples to go and to get the colt. And, and of course, He uses the animal owners to turn over that which was theirs. It wasn't that Jesus was helpless in any way. It wasn't that He needed assistance. He simply delighted in the faithful servants of the disciples or to those who were loyal to Him. So the disciples were told to go, and they go, and the animal owners were told to give up their animal, and they did. And beloved, we can take heart in all of this, because we can take heart that the, the death and the, the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of Christ was not plan B. It had been plan A from the very beginning. God did not have to adjust His plans for an obstinate people or for some unruly crowd, or for a power-hungry group of religious leaders. In fact, God was using all of those groups to bring about that predetermined plan to do according to His sovereign will. And like the disciples, you know, we need to remember the importance of doing whatever it is that Christ asks us or commands us to do in His Word. And to do so cheerfully and, and willingly. And like the animal owners, we need to remember to hold those things. And we've said this throughout this gospel as well. To hold those things that He has given us with open hands. Why? So that whatever is in our hands and whoever is in our hands, we are ready to release them. That they might be used for His sake. As He calls us to do. Right? To give back that which is His for His glory, for our good and for the good of others. Verse 35 and 36, we see the parade. And they brought it, the donkey, and 
to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it, and as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Right? It's, the wait was over. Right? It's, it's now, it, it's becoming clear. The fullness of time had come, and they can see it unfolding. It was no longer necessary to withhold His identity. It was no longer necessary to withhold the plan and purpose. He's less than a week away from fulfilling His purpose, and it's time to announce the arrival. He's come. So having spent His ministry walking, it's now time to ride. And not simply ride, but ride on a donkey that's never been ridden before. And they take that donkey, and because, because he's the king and able to sit on that donkey, that donkey is worthy of him because it's never been written before, but right, they, they, take that, they take the donkey and then they take their cloaks because royalty must ride in a saddle, and so they, they create a makeshift saddle and they place it on the back of that donkey. And then they pick him up and set him on, on top. In Matthew's account, we read that they, they brought two. They brought the mother and the foal because the crowds would have been so large, probably would have scared the young one. And Mom needed to be, be by to keep it calm. And as they begin to move, again, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, but it, as they begin to move, then those along the way beginning, throw, not, their cloaks weren't used to sit on top of the donkey. Their cloaks were set on the ground so that the donkey might walk on top. It was an act of respect and submission to the authority of a monarch. Everything, every detail of this parade, for lack of a better word, was pointed to the fact that this was a compulsory response. Right? The people knew what they must do. He was the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a royal procession that's taking place. They're obligated to give Him the accolades, accolades that they were giving Him. He and He alone was worthy of their honor. He and He alone was worthy of their admiration. He and He alone was deserving of, of that honor and that glory. And He remains that one who is the, the one and only who is worthy of that honor and adoration. He remains that one who is, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? He is the only one who, in Paul's words, God has highly exalted and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess on heaven or in heaven and on earth and under the earth that, uh, every, uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one else, beloved, is worthy of our loyalty. No one else is worthy of our submission. No one else is worthy of us to obey. No one else is worthy of our devotion. He is our salvation. We are His people. We have been sought We've been sought out. He's bought us. We have not been forsaken. We will not be forsaken. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember, we need to behold our King. We need to serve Him alone. 
Which brings us to the last detail in verse 37. We need to see his praise. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, But blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Luke says there, there's a multitude of disciples that have been following him. Some have been following him the whole time. Others have joined him along the way at different points when maybe he's passed through their city. But they're all beginning to rejoice and praise him. Right? They're beginning to worship him. And they're worshiping him, Luke says, because of what they saw and heard, or what they saw. Right? They saw the blind receive their sight. They saw the lame walk. They saw the diseased cleansed. They've seen the dead rise again to new life. And all that was to confirm the message that he had been preaching of the good news of the kingdom and that the kingdom had arrived. And their rejoicing comes, comes from Psalm 118. And we sang it earlier just as they were probably singing it, maybe a different tune, but they were sing, we were singing what they were singing. And what's interesting is that you know, they, uh, we sang, as, as the psalm says, uh, there, there was one who will come, or that he is coming, but notice what they, they, they say, they're specific, they're not general, they're specific, and they say, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they join in the chorus that the angels sang when he was born. They just kind of reverse the order, but they're saying the same thing. They're giving glory to the one and only one who deserved their adoration, the only one that was deserving of worship, the only one that was worthy of praise. But guess who didn't like it? The Pharisees, Pharisees had, had no desire to do what everybody else was doing. They didn't want to worship Him, they didn't join in, and they wanted others to stop. They didn't want Him to worship, they didn't, or they didn't want others to worship Him, and, and, and they weren't going to worship Him themselves. And, and Jesus' response is profound. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And guess what? I love how Philip Ryken puts it. He said, what happened when the Pharisees tried to stop the people who were praising Jesus as their king? Jesus did not say, you know, you're right. People really shouldn't worship me. On the contrary. He says, Jesus refused to be acknowledged as anything except the king. In fact, he said that if people stopped worshiping him, then the whole universe would fill the silence with praise. Jesus could not and would not deny that this is what He truly deserved. Jesus Himself says He was worthy of praise, and He was going to receive that praise one way or the other. If the people didn't praise Him, creation would. All of creation will one day praise Him. The people weren't the only ones who couldn't contain their joy at the sight of their King. All of creation was ready to burst forth in praise. They were ready to praise the one through whom and for whom all things had been created. 
And we ask why. Well, in Paul's words, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So if the people wouldn't praise Him, the rocks would. And of course, the question before us is, what will we do? What will we do? Will we praise and worship the only one who is deserving of that praise and worship? Brothers and sisters, at this very moment, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, having conquered our enemies for us. We are not in bondage. We have, he has conquered and, and, and paid the penalty of our sin. He has, he has broken the chains of the power of our sin. And we have the hope of one day not being in the presence of sin. He is ruling and reigning today at this very moment. And to not worship Him and to not praise Him is to rebel against the One who has given us life. We owe, we owe Him not only our worship and our devotion, but our obedience as well. We should submit to Him in, in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. Now, I want to conclude with one final thought. When we, t- as a whole, message as a whole, right? They, they teach you to do this in school. Uh, when you take the passages as a whole, you're looking for that, that main point. Right? You're looking for the one point of the passage. And as I've been looking for that this week, we find, or I've found that main point of all places in the donkey. And I found it in the donkey because Jesus riding in on that donkey communicated what he's been communicating all along the way. Contrary to what people were expecting, you've heard me say this many times, he had not come to overthrow Rome politically or material, um, not materially, militarily. What he had come to do was spiritual. He had not come to display his power and his might as he would one day do, but he came on that day to display his humility and his gentleness and his meekness. Right? Meekness is actually power under restraint or under constraint. He will one day, as we read when we began, he will one day arrive on a white horse. But not on this day. He will one day come and execute judgment and justice and as we've said, it will be distinctive and definitive and divisive. But on this day, he arrived on a donkey as a humble Savior. He's, he was still the King of kings and Lord of lords, but he came that day as a humble king who had come to serve, not to be served, and to be a ransom for many. Why do I end here? Well, one scholar put it this way. He said, Jerusalem's king is a humble mean, yet victorious. And so it has always been that the church 
does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its King and Savior. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to consider how we approach the lost. We would do well to consider in Paul's words how we admonish the idle, how we encourage the faint-hearted, how we help the weak. We would do well to consider even how we address those who are in error. We would do well to consider these words from Pastor Riken, and these, these words I, I paraphrased and kind of added, tweaked a little bit, but he said, rather than always riding in on our high horse, not our white horse, to set people straight, actually he said to set everyone straight, we are actually more like Jesus when we come to people with our Savior's humility, gentleness, and peace. I think if we're honest, all too often we are known for what we don't believe and don't like and don't do than for what we do believe, do like, and are doing. I think we're often known more for what we are against than what we're for. We're often known more for pointing out how we are different from others than we are finding that common ground and what we might share in common with others. We're often known more for pointing fingers and shaking heads and setting others straight than we are for gently and humbly showing and pointing others to Jesus. So may we be a people who stand for the truth, absolutely, unequivocally. But may we also be known as a people who delight in and make much of Jesus, our King. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of glory. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of worship. And as we interact with others, may we be known for our humility and gentleness and meekness. That we are His and He is ours. And in the words of Luke, in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, may we be known as those who have been with Him. Let's pray together.